No, we're going to clean house, right? <laughs> this is called Cleaning House. Interesting title, huh? <laughs> You're probably wondering what this means. <laughs> if you want to do a ministry, go over to her house and clean it out, right? <laughs> and then everybody else says, hey, mine's... I think this might be a different kind of house, Okay. I want to... Uh, for you to imagine the aura of the excitement, the atmosphere, the huge crowds as they're awaiting their king to take over the capital city of Jerusalem, Israel. There's a high praise, there's a high acclamation that's being shouted by thousands of people that Jesus is giving a little bit a twist and a turn to. And we looked at that last week. We uh, left off at chapter 19, verse 44, and when it was definitely a time that seemed to be celebration, a triumph, Jesus prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, which actually took place about 40 years from then. That's interesting, isn't it? that here they are praising Him and He tells them this bad news. Why why blow a joyous time, right? So that's what we looked at last week. You know, it didn't seem like they were rejecting Him. But that is the problem. They were rejecting Jesus. You know, Jesus looks different to a lot of people. Even to people who are not Christians. And even within the body of Christ, they all have different, maybe, views of who Jesus is. But you know, Jesus said there's only one way. There's only one Savior. There's only one truth. And we look at Jesus, we want to look at Him, who He is, biblically, not by our own thoughts. Because when we do that, we create an idol here. Presenting Him in the way that He is not. And these people were ultimately going to reject Jesus. He weeps. And then He says, there will not be one stone left upon another. Basically, speaking, the city is going to be destroyed. It's going to be judged. He's talking about the temple. Great building, uh, an amazing wonder of the world it was. And so when he says that, it's like, wow, what, what does he mean? What's going on here? Well, that passage dealt with that very temple. You see, as they were going at the Mount of Olives and then they proceeded to go into Jerusalem through the east gate, he continued on that day, that triumphal entry, went about looking at the temple, seeing things. We don't get any information that he says anything or does anything. Then he goes back up to the Mount of Olives and stays with his very close friends. And that would be at Lazarus' house. 
the one He raised from the dead, to where He stays during the week. And then the next day, He got up, Him and His entourage, the disciples, and went into the city of Jerusalem, and He entered the temple. This time, He says what's on His heart and His mind. He's already seen this the day before. And now, He goes in. So that's where we're at. The next day after the triumphal entry. And I'll tell you what he's doing. He's attacking the religious system of the day. He's going to clean out the temple that's clean in the house. He attacks the religious system because he is the one who has the authority and the power to do so. That building represented Judaism. It was everything to the people. But who was the true Jesus Christ of Nazareth to them? See, they had so corrupted the temple. And Jesus is going to make it very clear that they have no authority, they have no power in that temple. He exposes them. And what He does is very extremely shocking for anyone to do what he did. You see, he didn't attack the Romans, did he? Who did he attack? What did he attack? He attacked the temple, which is the very heart of their religion. It's representing everything they believe. goes into that temple. He cleans it out. He attacks the most respected, the most elevated, the most trusted of all people in the land, what represented God. At least so they thought. He attacks that. The most corrupt of all things in Jerusalem was this temple and the religious system that they had. This is stunning. This is shocking what he did. So I want you to imagine being with him that day and seeing what he did by himself. Absolutely shocking. Well, let's stand for a moment. Grab your Bibles. We're going to get to the Word of God, folks. Are you ready? This is exciting. It's shocking. 19 verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priest and the scribes And the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Father, as we look at your word, may we hang on to every word you said. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. The first one is, uh, first point here is the purification of the temple. It was corrupt. 
What's Jesus going to do about it? Nobody had any clue that He was going to do what He did. Luke says He entered the temple. Matthew says He went into the temple of God. Mark has a story on this. It's the temple of God. God was being desecrated, dishonored and blasphemed in that temple. Even though the people said it was their worship to Him. The issue was not the Roman occupation over them. The issue was Jewish religious corruption to the truth. They had the oracles. They had the Word of God like nobody else in the rest of the nations. It was theirs. Look how they treated it. He's concerned with people's relationship to God. That's really what Christ is after. So, it says here, Jesus entered the temple. Okay, what can we get out of that? There's just a few short verses. When you look at it, you go, this looks like about ten minutes worth of the whole passage. But you know what? The word temple here is the general word, generic word, for the whole huge ground of where the temple proper is at. And we'll explain that in a minute. It, it deals with all the accommodating facilities that were on the temple grounds. And so this word here is a different Greek word than the building of the temple. It's where the building of the temple is at and all the surrounding area where would be the people would go. Uh, you have the east wall of the city. That's the very gate where you would go into that city. The east wall is even part of that temple ground. Many of you probably have seen the pictures of Jerusalem and that wall. And of course, the, the east gate is, is sealed today. But that would be part of, of that area. So I want you to grasp the reality here. How can we get this where it really makes an impact on us? Because see, a lot of people really don't take Jesus seriously. You ever notice that? Oh, I believe in Jesus. And they love the sweet Jesus. The gracious Jesus. But what He has done already as He spoke about judgment and then what He does here, they have difficulties with because it's showing His wrath and His anger which is a characteristic of who God is. This is the result of how people respond to Him in a wrong way. So, to grasp this reality that we want to get here today, I want you to get to really feel this. Uh, what is this action of cleaning out the temple? Well, I want you to remember just how big this area is as he approaches it and then enters this area. It was an incredibly large edifice. It had courts. It had outer courts, inner courts. It had giant columns all around it. I wished I had pictures here today. I think I'm going to try to start using some of that uh, if I can. If I can get off the internet sometimes like this because to see the picture of those porticles, the columns, 
the uh, uh, big massive stones that are there. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous place. This was the place of Mount Moriah. If we go back, you remember Mount Moriah, and you also have to remember what Abraham, who sacrificed Isaac. At this, point, there was nothing there at the time, no temple. Nobody would ever thought of that. That's where God told him to sacrifice his son, Isaac, his only son. And we know that story. Of course, God intervened. That angel comes in there and says, okay, you can stop. But Abraham was willing to do what God said because he believed in the resurrection. But that's the way it works. I believe it. He stood on the promises of God and was ready to do what God said. He didn't do it because God told him no. You don't have to. It's representing, though, the Father who gave His only Son to die for our sins. So, He did make a sacrifice because there was a ram caught in the thicket, right? That was the area where the temple area is at. It's still there today. (laughs) This area where we know to be the temple grounds. So, uh, they had regular sacrifices later on as they built the temple in this this area. You can imagine the white limestone that is in that temple. Huge boulders that just glisten when the sun shone upon that white limestone. It's like a jewel that had fallen from heaven. It was a beautiful place that temple area was. It's a series of porches, cloisters through which ran double rows of those columns. They're like 37 feet high. This is a tremendous place. Corinthian pillars it was, each cut from marble. It's covered by a flat roof. Entire court was just covered with marble as they walked there. They're walking on marble. Marble everywhere. Limestone. Beautiful edifice. Jesus is going to clean this whole place up. Not inside the temple building itself, but this whole area which is huge. There was an area there called Solomon's Porch. You might have heard of that. It's found in Acts 3.11. The court derived its name from the Gentiles that were permitted in this area. It was called the Court of Gentiles. You've heard of that, right? This is a court, an area where anybody and everybody could go. The court of Gentiles. That's where they could get to a holy God and pray there. It was an area of prayer and worship. Men, women, children, Gentiles could all go there. But, they couldn't go any further. That was the court of the Gentiles, as far as the Gentiles could go. If they went any further, you know what it meant? Death to the Gentiles. It's as far as they go. Now there was another court, called the court of women. So they could go into the court of the Gentiles, the basic area covering a huge area, and then go into an area that would be where the women could go, and men and anybody else that were were Jews. It's called the court of women. 
you go a little further and then you can go into the court of the Israelites, meaning the men. And this is where they would worship. So, uh, we can see that this is divided up. It's a huge area. You have thousands of people up in this area. This is where Jesus is going. This is where he's going to um, clean house. After the court of the Israelites is one more court. The court of the priests. And that's where they did their sacrificial duties all day long. This would be the area where the uh, the holy place and the holy of holies was at the temple proper now. There's the building. There's a different Greek word for that building. But Jesus just came to the court of the Gentiles in the huge area where business was going on. So the court of the priest was really the temple area itself. It's This whole area is the temple of God, right? The court of the Gentiles is what we want to focus on. Now I do want to tell you, if you were the court uh, at the court of uh, women or especially the court of the Israelites, you could actually see through there where the temple building was at and that the priest would be sacrificing the animals. So you could kind of sense that that was going on there. The priests did their duties. They had the laver where they would wash their hands and feet every time they passed by to go into the proper temple. So they do their serving of God. They would wash. There was a place before that is where the animals were sacrificed. And so, as they would sacrifice, then they would go and wash their feet, wash their hands, which is what we do in our daily life. There's the cross. There's that bronze altar up there at first. Then, as you go further, there's the laver where they would wash. The priests are representing who? Us today. They physically did that. Us, meaning the body of Christ, because of the altar, that was the bronze altar, because of the sacrifice, because of the cross, you go further, you wash your hands daily, don't you? You wash your feet. That's sanctification. Justification, sanctification. They would go further in, and then you have the bread that they would... Constantly keep bringing in there, keeping it fresh. It's part of their duties every day. And of course, you know, you, you, you've got that whole idea of what it is to worship God. And finally you have the Holy of Holies where the high priest could go just once a year. And that was for all the people representing not himself and then the nation. And it was a day of repentance. And so all of that issue is huge in worship. Now we focus on the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles come to worship God too. They may not be included in the Jewish Judaism, but they are allowed to pray to this one true God. 
So here they are. They're there. Jesus comes in this area. And if you're along with Jesus, you're going to be shocked at what you're going to see. Matter of fact, Jesus is shocked in a human sense. He is outraged. He is angered. Yes, God can be angry and not sin. We can be angry and not sin. Most often when we're angry, we also sin. It's about a righteous anger, about God's holiness being offended. Jesus was very angry. See, the Jews had turned this into a business center. It was never intended to do that. The business was selling animals for needed sacrifices. Well, that sounds right. They need to have sacrificial animals. Where are they going to get them at? Well, I'm sure that's what they thought, and as time went on, this turned into a lucrative business. Especially for Annas, the high priest. And they got a lot of money off this deal. It's a business. Buying and selling took place. They marked everything up just like business people do up to a great profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. <laughs> they made a robber's den. They had not only animals that they sold, they had all the accommodations that went with offerings and sacrifices. They had money changers there. They, they had oil and wine and salt that they sold because those were part of sacrifices. You look in Leviticus, you'll see where they used salt. You'll see where they used oil. You'll see where they used wine in it. So those were all prerequisites to sacrifice. So if they just bring in all that other stuff, you know, then they can make even more money and a profit. It was quite a deal they had going. It was really shops. It was a constant marketplace in the temple, in that place that we just described of what it, what it is. You had money changers there. Uh, they're making extra money because the people come from foreign countries. And if they hadn't already exchanged their money, they'd do it conveniently. You've heard of convenience stores? They charge a little bit higher than what other stores do, right? The grocery stores. But it was convenient for the people and they would pay extra money to change that money. I think that's probably the way it works today. I've heard about airports. You know, if they were to go, maybe go to the bank and get it exchanged then beforehand, it wouldn't cost more to get that money... Uh, it wasn't equal <laughs> to what, it, what the money was about. But anyway, that is what's going on. And people would buy these areas to set up shop. It was franchising. And the temple became what would be equal to, if you've ever been in Mexico, gone across the border, and you go to the marketplace, there's just people everywhere with their own shops, and they're selling anywhere from blankets to, you know, whatever. Little little things that would be, you know, uh, 
maybe trinkets, something you can take back home and to show as souvenirs. And uh, so anyway, you know, it, it's it's that kind of marketplace. If you brought your own animal to be sacrificed, you run a risk. Because that animal has to be inspected now. It has to be perfect without blemish. And almost always they would find a blemish. Your animal's no good. Well, what's that mean? Well, you have to buy the animal, the lamb, because it's Passover time. Everybody, every family is to have a lamb representing them. So, if you have that lamb, you're going to have to pay a lot more for that lamb than what you had when you brought it. Brought your own there. Do you see what's going on? A lot of money being made. It's the bazaar of Annas. And so... You've got this going on, you've got the stench, you've got the filth, all the noise, the chaos. We're at the temple. This is where the Gentiles pray to God. Gentiles can't even come up there and really worship God and pray because of the mass amount of shops and business and craziness that's going on. The court of the Gentiles is now a marketplace. It's like a stockyard. It's chaos. Jesus comes into this area, this temple, and He knows the corruption. He knows the robbery, the thievery. They have no conscience whatever about bilking the poor. So there were sellers of doves and pigeons because there were some people so poor that they could not buy a lamb. There are many people that way. And the doves and the pigeons were very inexpensive. Something like a, a dime to us today. So they could afford to buy a sacrificial animal to present. That's good. God provided that in Leviticus for the ones who couldn't come with the lamb. So, that is why that we see later that it mentions like in certain gospel accounts, Mark and Matthew, about these birds, why they're there and what's going on. This is a hangout for the crooks, the charlatans, anybody who wants to make a big profit. And the priestly family is going to take the money from them it's like at the mall if you have a business there there's a percentage taken out for that business that if they make more business then that more percentage will go to the mall people once you own it so this is not the first time Jesus has seen this the way it is because he did it at the very first part of his ministry too here we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke presenting this. John presents it, but it was at a different time. It was when the ministry first started. Let's go there for a moment. John 2, 13 through 17. Are you guys getting the gist, the feel of this? Now, 
And it's, it's a Passover again, just like what the Passover is at the uh, last time Jesus goes into Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews was uh, near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Well, there you go. That was the first time that he cleaned house. Wow. How did he ever get away with that? Well, Jesus is God. He can do anything he wants. He did. Right there, then and there, was when the religious leaders were saying, he's a marked man. From there on out. That's their business. That's their money. It comes down to money. Have you ever noticed that? There we are. From there on, they try to figure out how to get him. Well, they're not going to get him until it's God's perfect time. Otherwise, they could have gotten him right there. You know, why didn't they? God was not going to let that happen. So, he made a whip, cleaned out the temple. In our text today, we don't see him making a whip and driving them out. But that doesn't mean that he didn't do that. He could have. I don't know. It's just that he does something that just is astounding that had to be supernatural. Let's go to Matthew 21, 12 and 13. Same setting. It's right after... Now this this is uh, equal to our... Parallel to our Luke passage today, right? Okay. This is this after the triumphal entry. And Matthew records that. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. See, that's why I went to a, a long description of what the temple and the temple grounds were about. Otherwise you say, what, what? Did he go into the holy place? Did they have markets in there? No, we're talking about a huge place way out there where there are just tremendous amounts of business going on. So it says, either the temple drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. There we have Matthew. Let's go to Mark eleven fifteen through 17. I mean, this had to be recorded as much as it was. Because this is a significant thing that he does that really gets around as far as the news is concerned. This had to be hot, the hottest news of the day. Somebody has, has cleaned the house. They took out all the money changers. They took out all the people who were selling the doves, all of the animals. Everything was cleared out of that temple. A lot of animals, a lot of sheep. A lot of sheep. 
thousands and thousands of sheep were there to sell. Mark eleven fifteen. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Wow. Jesus, you're not going to win friends this way. (laughs) This is not going to go over well at all. Okay. Let's go to Malachi 3. It's kind of interesting. Malachi is the last chapter in the Old Testament. And it really is going to kind of introduce the Messiah and John the Baptist. So it's pointing maybe a little bit to the first time he came and John the Baptist. But it also is pointing, I think, even more so to the second time that he comes back. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Who's that? The messenger? John the Baptist. It was prophesied 400 years. This is the last book in the Bible. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Ultimately, that's the second coming of Christ. And I can think of a millennial temple where He will enter. We'll be there. We'll be worshiping God. And a temple that will be the most magnificent temple that's ever been built. So a little prophecy there, but it could mean a little bit, behold, you know, Jesus is coming. He will come to His temple. He's done that. Further, will how many hundreds of thousands or, or thousands of people are up there on that temple mount when Jesus comes in there? It's not a, a little crowd. It's not a few hundred people. It's thousands of people, folks. I want you to keep grabbing the essence of what, what's really going on here. We don't have a video to show this. I'll tell you what. I hope the Lord has some kind of a video that He can show us when we get there. Somewhere along the line, He says, Hey, did you guys, you guys want to know what it looked like whenever I went into the temple? Check this out. And it's not even on internet. You know, it's just, you know, just, just a picture right there, just like that live streaming or something are going back it's it's recorded i guess but anyway can you imagine the people when jesus comes in there they go shh, 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 and they all start lining up and maybe kind of going out and willingly with without a fight with this is passover this is passover week This is the very day that people are buying the lamb because they have to pick it out. 
on the tenth of Nisan, if that's what this is, or somewhere they're about, they they have to have all of this stuff to get the sacrifice done, and they it enters into the family's home, and they treat it like one of the family, and then the, on the sacrificial day they slit its throat, and the blood comes out, and the blood ran all over Jerusalem. The, I think it's. Kidron Brook and such ran down into that. Well, it's like they're not going willingly. They're not going without an argument, are they? All the money that they're making. Do you think they had resistance? You know it. Some of those guys are probably trying to fist fight him. Trying to deck him. Doesn't say that, but he does. Maybe he doesn't even give him a chance to even get a swing. And that's some kind of a. This is a supernatural event. This is a supernatural hero, Jesus Christ Himself. Superhero. They don't exist. They're just in you know, figments, imagination. You know, neat to watch in the shows, but we know that none of that could be real. It's ridiculous. You know, it goes overboard sometimes. Unbelievable. Well, Jesus did something that probably seemed unbelievable to anybody today to go in and wipe them all out. It means He literally threw them out of the place. Focus on this. Can you imagine Him throwing people out like a bouncer? (laughs) He had zeal, didn't He, for the house of the Lord. This is one of the biggest offenses that could have been done. They did not take God seriously. They made up their own rules. He overthrew the tables of the money changers. You know, it's not like he came up politely, came and said, Hey guys, you know, look, look. You gotta stop this. Please, you know, just get out. This is not right. You know, you shouldn't be doing this in the temple. God never designed it to do this. Come on, guys, please. Did Jesus do that? Well, to them and the world, He's not a nice guy to do something like this. He physically threw people out. There are temple guards all over this area, especially at Passover. I mean, security there was at its height. He physically flipped tables through them. Money changers, literally in the Greek, those who make small change. He flipped off their, them off their stools and he bodily threw them out of the place. Money is flying everywhere. He doesn't even allow them to go and pick it up as they leave. Because, uh, was it in Mark that we read that? That he did not allow them to carry anything out with them. At least they could take it outside the temple grounds and maybe try to sell it, right? No, that's it. It must have been something to behold this. This physical power that Jesus had. I would love to see this. This is an amazing thing that just happened. It's not just a few little, a couple of shops. A couple little stands that they have. That's why I keep emphasizing there are hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people there in this 
trading area that they have. They left without their stuff. Do you ever want to see the wrath of God? Do you ever want to make God angry? I don't want to see it. I never want to see His anger. If you are His, He will never bring the wrath of God upon you. Right? We, we sing songs about that. We, we testify to that. Now God does discipline His people. And He disciplines all, all of our life. That means to train us. Sometimes it's a little more force than we would appreciate and like. But he, we're His children. He loves us. He wants us to be the best that we can through Him. That's what He's doing to us. You see, He is the Lord of the temple. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the... He is everything, isn't He? Go to Matthew 12, verse 6. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. He's speaking of Himself. He's greater than the temple that was built with hands. He is the temple Himself. He is the temple. He's the Lord of the temple. He has absolute authority over this place. And He shows it. Jesus is attacking the religious system. I've got to ask you a question. What would happen if Jesus came into the world today, right now, and He came back? You know what? He would attack the church. If He were to come back in the same mode, He said, wait a minute, no, 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 He attacks and brings judgment. Well, we know about the second coming, but if just imagine if he would just come back to visit what's going on in the world, you know, and it really was not his second coming. You know, I'm just making this up. But I'm not making up the fact that, you know what, I don't believe that he would go to Washington, D.C. first and clean out the swamp, even though, boy, that certainly needs to continually be done. There's a certain party that needs to be totally taken out of there. You know, they, they are not in touch with American people, right? So don't get me wrong about that, but I'm just saying he wouldn't come to the universities which are teaching everything against God. And then, of course, they teach evolution there, right? Schools, government. You think, boy, that's what, what we really need. Well, here's our prayer, folks. Lord, cleanse your church. It is sad. What has happened to the body of Christ in the time that we live in? And I'm not saying that all churches are evil and wicked and bad, but to the ones who are not proclaiming God's truth and who Jesus really is and what His whole plan is about and teaching the whole counsel of God, if they're not teaching the Word of God, I pray that He would cleanse us. For whoever does not believe Christ for whoever He is, they need to be taken out unless God so desires to convert them. Because, see, you cannot be a Christian 
cannot believe in the Word of God. Lord, cleanse your church. You know what Peter says? And here's a, I've got something to back this up now. Judgment begins at the house of God. Judgment begins with what is considered to be His people. And yes, there are people who are not true. And there are people who are true, but they're not living a consistent life to show Christ in their lives. Jesus needs to attack the religious system of the day. And I'm not even talking about Hinduism and Buddhism. You all know what we all believe about that. It's totally, absolutely false. And all the cults that are involved that look like they're Christian and and claim Christ. But I'm talking about the people who had good background and foundation of the Bible. Many denominations stood on the Word of God. They had their differences, but at the same time, the Word of God was the essence of what they believed in. Jesus, here in Luke, nineteen, he says, "It is written." Did Jesus ever say that much? (laughs) He said it a lot. That's basically what it is written. This is in God's Word. See, Jesus is the Word of God. This comes right out of the Old Testament. They would have known it. And my house shall be a house of prayer. A house of prayer. This is God's house. Prayer is the very essence of worship. Prayer is the focus of communing with God. Sometimes, you know, we might literally be praying, Father, right? Art in heaven, whatever. But whenever we're also quoting, reading His Scripture, that's all a part of it. That's all a part of the worship. Uh, Whenever we are saying praise, reading the confessions, That's based on truth. It's a foundation. It's based on the Word of God. Prayer is based on the Word of God. It's it's communing with God. This place for the Gentiles was intended to be a place of prayer. How could they pray with all the chaos that was going on? It was to be a place of devotion. A place of meditation, a place of repentance, a place of brokenness, a a place of confession, a place of forgiveness and grace. That is what he's talking about when he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. You know what? It was turned into a circus. It was a blasphemy to the holy God. It was a robbery den. Look in Isaiah 56, verse 7. And let's see Jesus make a quote out of the Old Testament. Isaiah 56, 7. The very Word of God speaks. Even though I will bring to my holy mountain, those I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer 
for all the peoples. The court of Gentiles. All the peoples. A house of prayer. That's why there was a, a, a court of Gentiles made. To show that they were open to God's grace too. Let's look at 1 Kings 8.29. You have the Samuels, then you have 1 Kings. 1 Kings 8, the temple of Solomon is being consecrated. Let me get to verse 29. It says that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. As the temple was built, they present it, and there it is. It's a prayer of dedication. What it was meant to be. Look in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, what is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. It's a physical place. It just represents the place of God. We know we worship Him in spirit and truth. And the temple itself is not God. But He provided a place where they could go. And, you know, it's like a symbolism. And then where people can gather. It's just like when we take the Lord's Supper. It's a symbol. But it means something, doesn't it? That's what the temple is to them, to behold the beauty of the Lord. You know, David couldn't wait to go up to Aliat, to ascend to the house of the Lord to worship Him, to pray to Him. Even today, you know, we don't have temples. And the church really is not a building, it's people. But there's a place where people gather. Some people can say, well, you know what? I believe in Jesus and I don't need to go to a building or a church where they go, I just worship Him alone. Yeah, I can tell you what, their doctrine is absolutely horrible if that's the case. Because never in Scripture does it talk about that. It talks about the early church met. They met in homes. Later on they met in bigger buildings. They met in the upper room. Wherever God's people get together is the church. We have a little building here that we meet. Thankful for it because we can come here and we know that there's nothing magical in this building whatsoever. But it represents the place of God and it's special when God's people come together. And it's a sin if you do not worship God together. In the, if you look in Hebrews, you find out that it uh, there's the sense of people coming together to worship God. It's a divine appointment that people have. Do not forsake your assembling together. Do not forsake that. Do not abandon it. And yet, it's happening all over our country today. Churches are getting smaller and smaller. Even the mega churches are getting smaller. Some are growing, and in the right way, but that's few and far between. 
most of the churches are getting smaller and smaller because people are forsaking and abandoning coming together. They really have no use. Sometimes it's because the Word of God is not preached there. And so be it. Sometimes the Word of God is preached here. Matter of fact, I think it has been preached every Sunday and every time we have Bible study. That's all we do. And we try to get to the very doctrine and the precepts of what is meant there and to have our lives conform. Isaiah 65 verse 4. Or else, how do people grow, right? I'm adamant on that, folks. Psalm 65, verse 4. So it is valuable to have a place. Um, Wrong place. You guys have probably already read it before, right? Or have now read it. It says... um, How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell, to live in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. That is saying a lot. That is how important that place was. It was a place to confess sin and go and worship. You remember the publican? Right? And you remember the Pharisee? They're both praying. And the publican is pounding his breast. God, be merciful. Be propitious towards me. Apply the sacrifice that is offered in the temple. And he's way off from it in this area. He's out there like in the court of Gentiles. Maybe the court of the Israelites, I think maybe the Gentiles, praying there that that sacrifice would apply to his life. He needs God's mercy. The propitiation. So, that is how important the temple was and why Jesus took this so seriously. But you have made it a robber's den. Thieves like to hole up in caves. They'd be hiding in the caves. The thieves would. They'd get together. So that's why he says, you've made it a robber's den. Or they'd get together, whatever it be, to, to hide out together. A cave for thieves. A refuge for robbers. Rather than worshipers. This temple became a place of refuge. For the very people that denied who God really is. The worshipers. They are the ones who deserve to be there and worshiping God. It was a place to protect blasphemers. A robber's den. Now we come to the last one, point number two. 47-48. He was teaching daily in the temple. All in that whole area. After all of this happened, how in the world did he throw all those people out? Got them all out. Everything just was going helter-skelter. And then he continued to show up that Passion Week to teach the people. Well, it says, teaching down the temple, but the chief priest, 
The scribes, the leading men among the people, were trying to destroy him. I guess they can't get it done. He preached, he taught the gospel. He taught the true things of God. He showed compassion. He healed even during that time. Look at Luke 21, verse 37. Look at what he's doing here all that week. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple. But at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. Spend the night with his friends, then go back into Jerusalem, and then continue to teach. That's what he's always doing. He is the supreme teacher. So the leaders are trying to destroy him. They're trying to kill him. The chief priests, the scribes, the leading men, the chief priests, they're the ones who are operating the temple. They were the, the first group. You know, that destroyed their money intake. Because I tend to think the rest of that week, those people were ran out and Jesus is teaching in the temple. They didn't have any more of that income coming in at Passover time. Oh, can you imagine that? I remember having business around Christmas time and Easter time. And it was the time of the year that helped us get by through the rest of the year. You know, it, but I hoped it wouldn't be you know, anything like this. But there's certain times of the year that's what this is. This is the highlight. This is when they make their biggest money. So there's the chief priests. They operate this. You have the scribes. They're the lawyers. The religious lawyers. You have the, the scholars who supported everything of this and the, the study of Scripture. And so they're kind of in cahoots with all the other people, the leading men. It's a collection of people and maybe even the Sanhedrin, which is made up of Sadducees. They were the liberal people who didn't really believe in the rest of the Bible outside of the first five books. Uh, The ruling class, whoever they are, collectively they're coming together and they're all in agreement. It's like the Democratic Party today. No matter what happens, they're always against the president and what the other party has. It, it can be the very protection of our nation, and they're against it. No matter what they do, well, that's what's happening here. No matter what Jesus does, they're against him. He has just done something that is very righteous. He cleaned house. Praise God, right? And there he is the rest of the week in their teaching. And they're in total agreement. Luke 22, 2. The chief priests, the scribes, were seeking how they might put him to death. For they, but they were afraid of the people. The people are still following. He's teaching. He's healing. People are still on his side, for the most part. But as they start hearing accusations against him as the week goes on, they go, hmm, I wonder, I wonder if he's okay. Because our leaders are saying that he's not. They're going to abandon him. They want him dead more than ever before. But at the very end here of Luke 19, as we get ready to close this out, they couldn't find anything. They couldn't get the time to, to kill him. Otherwise, they'd have a mob on them. For all the people were hanging on to every word he said. I like that. Because that's what we're about, isn't it? To hang on every word he says. Not saying, but, 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 but. 
and then making our own little inclusion into the way that it really... But you, yeah, you're really over-misinterpreting uh, that. I know there be, it could be somebody saying all through Luke, as we have presented, I think Jesus in the proper way would say, you, well, that's your own opinion. There, is, is there any other opinion than what He just did here? Well, people could say, yeah, but you know, that's probably, that probably really didn't happen. No, that that did, Jesus never did that. He was he was too nice of a guy. He was loving. So now they're saying that God is lying. People always want to doubt what is true, don't they? If they don't know Christ, no one ever spoke like him. Of course, he was ministering in their midst with c- complete immunity to what they could do. There wasn't a thing they could do about it. I love it. And they feared the multitude. The leaders did. And so you have the multitude hanging on every word. Jesus has just shown us how He demonstrated power. Supernatural power. No human man could go in there and do that with that many people with all the security that is around. And we don't even see that even as a weapon. He could have had the whip. I could definitely see that. He's holy. And He is who He says He is. Let His Word speak for what it is. We're not trying to be hateful, are we? We want to be gracious. But we have to stick to what is really true here. I see a very angry Jesus. Do you see anything else? But it's all for His glory. See, people are always trying to ruin what is ultimate truth. He is holy. He is to be worshipped with all reverence, with all fear, and with joy and spirit and truth. That's what we should desire to do here. He cleansed the temple. And we hang on every word He said. Let's pray. Father, great God, You are holy. What a powerful Jesus is that we worship. We are in awe. We're amazed. We have to take Him literally the way that He's shown in Scripture. And we see it in the right way and it frees us. We see Him as a a friend of ours. Not some kind of ogre, but someone who holds the truth to its highest. Lord, we want more of that high truth. Lord, would You bless us? Lord, would You bring people that are like-minded, that want the Word of God into this little church, a little church that seems to be having more and more people leave. Don't let it die, Lord. Help us to be a church that can stand out in a city that needs the truth. And wherever we're at, whether we're on our job, whether we're at in our neighborhood or in our home, that we proclaim Your truth, first of all, living Your truth, 
and it's speaking your truth. Lord, help us to grow in numbers if it so be your will so that we can continue to proclaim this. And in that we pray in your Son's name. Amen.